Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds and this year's Brody Lectureship. And we are, uh, we are going to be thrilled to hear today's talk. To introduce our speaker today, uh, Rick Inelow will come to the podium. Um, just before he does, let me announce that to get credit, you text in NIH7. Kind of an interesting one to remember, right? NIH7. Um, and, the, and you will be texted back your uh, documentation of your accreditation. Uh, today's speaker will have on slide two affiliated uh, uh, potential conflicts which have been resolved. And Rick, come tell us about today's speaker. Rick is a professor of medicine and of microbiology and immunology. He's our department's vice chair for research. He's been engaged in many aspects of both clinical leadership here and certainly research leadership in the CTSA and in the CTO office and in many other academic endeavors. Rick? Thanks, Rich. Um, before I uh, have the pleasure of introducing today's speaker, um, I wanted to just take a moment to acknowledge uh, the uh, the benefactor and the benefactress of the, the lecture and a lot of the work that we do. Uh, Jerome Brody, uh, for whom the uh, lectureship is named, um, uh, was, a, was a Dartmouth class of 44 uh, and Tuck School of Business class of 46. Uh, he was seemingly sort of a uh, man about town with <coughs> hands, his, his business sense was permeated many different aspects of his life. He was a successful restaurateur, uh, businessman. He was a political activist um, and, of course, devoted husband and father. He was possibly best known for his successful restaurants, Gallagher's Steakhouse in New York City, and then the Grand Central <laughs> Station Oyster Bar. Um, he and his, uh, his wife, Marlon, eventually left that business and developed a thoroughbred farm, initially uh, raising Angus cattle, and then transitioning over to uh, very successful thoroughbred racing, which I'll mention briefly, active in politics, supporting uh, JFK, Edward Koch, Mario Cuomo, and others for whom the political spectrum would probably have little use today. Um, <laughs> but he uh, shouldn't, shouldn't drift in that direction. He conceived and initiated the movement to create high-quality destination restaurants in New York City, beginning with the development of the Four Seasons and ultimately um, to the, uh, let me see, let me touch panels, into, uh, next slide. Just hit the right arrow. Hit the right arrow. And that's, uh, oops, so that's uh, Jerry sitting in the Grand Central Station Oyster Bar, which for those of you who've had the pleasure of stopping there in Grand Central Station uh, know what a fine establishment it is and how, how uh, terrific the, uh, the food and the service and the ambiance. I, uh, I make it a point myself to go there. And... Um, this is a picture of, uh, of his wife, Marlon, who is with us today. Uh, she met uh, Jerry in Paris when she was translating for John Steinbeck, who is shown left. And at the time, he was his restaurant group was working on restaurants, uh, develop, developing restaurants in uh, Europe, Paris, 
Um, so his reach was widespread. And then after that, they together uh, sold out of the most of the restaurant business, if I'm not mistaken, and moved to upstate New York, Ghent, and began a initially uh, an Angus cattle farm, uh, and then subsequently a thoroughbred uh, breeding farm, and this is a picture of one of their initial superstars, Manhattan Gal, uh, which launched their their brand, as it were, and they've continued to this day, Marlon has continued to this day, um, with a great deal of attention and uh, and love for her quadrupeds, fast and slow alike. And um, so, unfor unfortunately, Jerry died in, in 2001 of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which was, that was a time when we really had very little to offer. And even though one could argue that we haven't quite crossed that threshold to having uh, having real cures and real treatments, we're, we're remarkably close. And I think you'll hear a little bit more about that. Um, and this endowment is designed to uh, make the understanding and spread the understanding of what's known about idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and related diseases about which so little was known and the, um, the acceleration of the pace of knowledge is, is becoming breathtaking at present. And today we're going to hear from uh, Dr. Fernando Martinez, who is a leader in this field and in a number of other fields. He has his fingerprints are on just about every position statement that's come out of the American Thoracic Society, uh, including some of the um, uh, most recent studies showing the impact of commensal bacteria on the progression and possibly even the initiation of the disease in IPF. Similarly, in COPD and airway disease, I think the appreciation of commensal bacteria with whom we assume we live in peaceful coexistence may not always necessarily be the case. And rather than uh, belabor this any further, he can tell you much better about it than I am. He came, he spent most of his career, if I'm not mistaken, at Michigan um, and recently in the last year moved to Cornell um, so that he could follow his Yankees much more closely. I couldn't give that. So anyway, uh, without further ado, uh, let me turn it over to uh, Fernando. And he, obviously, I, I could spend all day telling you about his awards and, and his uh, positions and his papers and his grants, but I won't bother you with that and let him tell us what's really new. So thanks, uh, it's, it's an honor to be here. I was at Gallagher's last week, as a matter of fact, on 52nd, so still there, very good. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I won't go there, a little on that side is true, it's a little on the expensive side. What's that? I'll let you guys deal with this. So the other thing that's interesting is actually one of, uh, one of my patients in New York who was uh, a legislator, uh, actually knew, Brody, actually, uh, talking to him and telling him he was coming to give this lecture. He said, oh, I knew him. So, Excuse me, sir, is your microphone on? Uh, if it's not, I will turn it on. Because if not, I'll have to come back. No, no, no. <laughs> can you guys hear me in the back? Oh, now I can, I can even hear myself, even better. Um, and so thank you very much for the invitation. So I, uh, I still have my Michigan appointment uh, and uh, still travel back and forth and have a lot of uh, my grants that are interacting with, uh, with the folks that are there. So I have spent uh, the last uh, probably 20, 
odd years working in this, uh, in this field uh, in pulmonary fibrosis. Uh, it, it is a, it's a challenging uh, disorder. There's no question about it. Uh, and it's challenging because up there are my conflicts. So I, this, those are my IPF-related conflicts. So actually, this is an interesting thing about IPF-related conflicts. If you look at those top steering committees, those are active steering committees doing therapeutic trials in IPF. Five years ago, how many would have been on that list? One or two? And these are not all of them. Just goes to show how much rapid progression there's been in this field. And so just to, that, that's just industry. What I'm going to present to you is all NHLBI-related NIH 7, the code for your, uh, to get your, uh, your components there. So we have developed a much better understanding of the biology of this disorder. So this is from an invited review Jeff Drazen had asked us to write recently on IPF. And for those of you that don't spend a lot of time dealing in this field, that there are several things that we've learned, that I've certainly learned dealing with IPF over the course of the last 20 odd years. One of them is it never happens to somebody who's not nice. It's unbelievable, it's like a risk factor for that disease. Uh, and the second thing is it still has a prognosis that is only surpassed in terms of bad prognosis by two cancers. Do you have any idea what those two cancers are? They have worse survival than IPF. Pancreatic, lung. IPF is right around that level of mortality. So you just get a sense. I mean, it is a horrible illness and is a bad way to die. And so there are many of us that spend a lot of time trying to figure out how we can address various components. One of the things that I think we've all learned in this IPF world, given that prognosis, it is exceedingly difficult in an individual patient to be able to sit with that patient and say, you're going to do well for the next five years versus you're going to do really poorly in the next year. So the idea of being able to predict in an individual patient what is likely to happen is an area where there's intense interest. Because it has very practical ramifications. So when I was at Michigan, I, I ran a lung transplant program there. Lung transplantation is a horrible treatment. You don't want to get a lung transplant unless I could sit in front of you and say, you will die in the next year to two without it. I myself would not have a transplant unless somebody would tell me that. I don't know if it's any better in the GI world. I suspect you guys have done better than we have. But that's true for lung transplants. So I have been involved in trying to determine how you can, in an individual patient, with any semblance of fidelity, to be able to give them a sense of what their time course is likely to be. Because a person with IPF most likely will die from their IPF. Sadly that you've seen that in, uh, from a personal perspective. The timing of that is very difficult for us to predict. So there's been there's a separate review that we asked, were asked to, to write last year in the Nature series. Can we, using relatively straightforward modalities in an individual patient, link some type of a biomarker prognostic strategy that ideally would give us a sense of how we could therapeutically intervene. Make sense? That makes sense to you? Be something that would be useful? So there's been a whole bunch of work on this area, ranging from circulating proteins, circulating proteins on this side, circulating cells, phenotypes of various inflammatory cells, lung-specific cells, proteins, so there's just massive amounts of investigation in this area. There are multiple groups globally that are working on trying to better refine, and everyone has sort of their own little view of what they think is going to be the fact, the predictive factor. All right? For those of you that are young people, it is never that straightforward. I'm sorry. I don't mean to burst your bubble. And so that led to this study. So I'll give you a little background in the study. So my division chief at Michigan for the 23 years that I was there was a guy named Galen Taze who you've interacted with, who was a wonderful human being, who was a really just a, a clever, clever guy. And so in, in 2009, something dramatic happened in the United States. What was that? What happened in 2009? The economy trashed. And as a result, our president, who had just been elected at that time, had to come in under dire circumstances 
don't get me into the political field. I'm Cuban. I was born in Cuba. I'm an immigrant from Cuba. Cubans are the most right-wing political people. My mother thought that George Bush was the best president we ever had. Was a huge fan of Richard Nixon, just to show. Not to, not to get into the politics components. <laughs> What's that? I, I, spent, I spent 24 years in Ann Arbor, which is called the People's Republic of Ann Arbor. <laughs> My two kids are communists. <laughs> so, this, as an example of this, my, uh, my, my sister, who was at Tulane in New Orleans, your neck of the woods, uh, who died a couple of years ago, my older sister, had a heart kidney transplant. I got to see transplantation from the other side. Very instructive to have people in the healthcare system. Uh, you get to see the good and the bad. So she was in Ann Arbor for six months recuperating from a heart kidney transplant. So my mother had come up, uh, and my son was in town. And every day, every day, my son would do the same thing. He would go to my mother's apartment and take the symbol of communism, the New York Times. <laughs> Every day, he would take the New York Times and put it in front of her and say, why don't you read this? My mother was a brilliant person. She would read it and be going, I cannot believe my, my grandson's a communist. I can't believe my grandson's a communist. <laughs> and so I, I do not share the same proclivities as everybody else in my family, all of whom are make America great again. I'm going to get me started on that one. So, this was an idea that Galen had toyed with and said, wouldn't it be a great idea if we had the opportunity of taking a series of very well-defined patients with IPF and collect in those patients blood for proteins, proteomics, blood for inflammatory cells, phenotype inflammatory cells, do bronchoscopy in the same patients. And at the same time you do a blood sample, do BAL, do transbronchial biopsies, grow and isolate fibroblasts from those patients, and collect very rigorous clinical data over a period of time so that you could address this question of, is it a protein signature? Is it a cellular signature? Is it a combinatorial signature of those components? Are there any mechanisms that can come out of that? And so that was the idea we were dealing with. That is, from an NIH study point of view, a fishing expedition as you know, Dr. Antelope, and so it doesn't usually fly well in that setting. But at this point, we had an economic crisis. And so Obama had to generate, and I remember it very specifically, shovel-ready projects. You remember this? Where you had to demonstrate that you had something that was exciting, that would lead to jobs, and could lead to something else. Thereby Comet. <laughs> so that is how Comet was funded. It was $12 million of ARA funding that actually allowed us to do this particular study where we did all of those components. I mean, that's all that was the plan. It was a multi-center group that overlapped with the ongoing IPF network at that time. We were doing therapeutic trials. And there were multiple laboratories that were involved in analyzing and processing samples. So there were a whole series of groups that were involved in looking at a series of potential biomarker signatures for uh, circulating proteins. There were groups that were processing the tissue that was obtained with uh, transbronchial biopsies and the cells that were identified and cultured and stored. And there were, really, Michigan did most of the BAL work. That's where the, the work that, I'm, that I come from uh, generated. So this is Comet. Comet had follow-up for 48 weeks. Since you're familiar with the RS system, why do you think we chose 48 weeks? How many, how much, how long were these ARA grants? Do you remember? They were two-year grants, which gave us a third-year extension. So it wasn't that there was some magic to 48 weeks. It was very practical. You had funding for 48 weeks to be able to follow the last enrolled patient. And so we had a, a process that we were following patients for a short time. Now, again, mind you, at this time, I was running a lung transplant program at Michigan. And we make decisions regarding transplant listing based on one-year survivals. And so being able to predict what happens to an individual patient at a year is actually remarkably clinically useful from decision-making. So it was easy to justify scientifically why you'd want to go for that period of time. All right? So that was the study. So let me show you one aspect of that study. This is what you had asked me to concentrate. So you're in microbiology. I had to bring in something that was microbiology. Most of this technology comes from your field. It's the gut people that have trained us on the microbial communities in luminal organs. And so, got a GI folk in front here, so he can uh, attest to this. 
So the, the first thing I'll show you is one, one snippet of this comet study. And that was at the time that we did this. This was not a study that was designed to look at microbial communities in the lung because we did not do the sample collection appropriately to be able to account for oral contamination. Because if you think about it, your mouth is a cesspool. Sorry, guys. If you put a bronchoscope in, you're going to drag through that bronchoscope a whole series of oral organisms. So there's a big concern that the, just doing a bronchoscopic bronchoalveolar lavage, stick a bronchoscope 150 cc's and suck it back out, that you would have a contamination from these oral organisms. And so we, at the same time, then took explants of patients who were undergoing lung transplantation for IPF. And on the side, the explant was removed. We would sample multiple areas of the lung ex vivo. So there's no going through the oropharynx. This was isolated on a table. And we were able to identify that there was a very distinct microbial community present in what was previously considered to be the sterile lung. The lung is not sterile. It has its own microbial community. Not as impressive as the gut microbial community, but it's there. And it has a series of organisms that have good roles and some that are potentially problematic. And it's the balance of those organisms that generates a lot of what we see from an immunological perspective in the lung. And so there was clearly a, a, an immune, a, a microbial community that was distinct to the IPF lung. And when you predicted intermediate outcome of patients in the Comet study, in a complex multivariate analysis, there were a series of things that were predictive. So if you had reflux, here's, the, here's where we link. We actually have a reflux that had just got published in IPF where the mortality was improved. So I'm, I'm now a believer that reflux and IPF are intricately linked. Uh, whether you desaturate during a six-minute walk, that's predictive. That makes sense. But the best predictors of what happened to a patient with IPF or of an intermediate time point was the structure of the microbial community in the lung. So the, the, the Shannon Diversity Index is a way of looking at the microbial community and its distribution in the lung. And specifically, a series of gram-positive organisms were predictive. And in fact, if you had a, st a strep or a staph, operational taxonomic is a broad categorization of lots of, of organisms within that particular group, you had worse outcome over an intermediate time frame. So that look in your face is exactly correct. So what's up with that? But it was highly predictive. There was a, there's a paper that's actually just been submitted recently, which I got permission from Bethmore, one of the people that you know well, who's one of my favorite collaborators in Michigan, is a PhD investigator, who's like the nicest human being in the world, uh, who took the same samples from Comet, did a much more detailed, much more high-throughput mechanism for determining microbial communities. Confirm what we showed earlier, that the more abnormality in the microbial community you see in the IPF lung, the worse the survival. That's a good thing. She was able to also demonstrate that there was a clear pattern of abnormalities and inflammatory markers, cytokines, in the lung of patients with IPF compared to individuals that were healthy controls. Comet did not have a concomitant control group. That was a mistake that we had in that study. It was a funding component. It was practical. Didn't have the money to do, it, to do that. Uh, more importantly, she was able to demonstrate that there was a relationship between these abnormalities and in lung inflammatory markers and as a function of the lung microbial community. So in an additional extension from Comet, Comet has demonstrated that a dysbiotic, an abnormal microbial community in the lung is associated with death in patients with IPF. It's associated with abnormalities in lung-specific markers of altered immunity, suggesting that whatever is happening in that microbial community and somehow is, tends to be driving some of at least the inflammatory process that's being seen in these patients. All right? Let you read that carefully. What do we want? Respectful discourse. When do we want it? Now would be an agreeable time, but I'm interested in your opinion. So one of the things that was heartening, and for all of you who are young in science, there is nothing quite as gratifying as having a separate group confirm your findings, particularly when it's a finding that is highly controversial. And so months after our paper was published, this came out in our major respiratory journal, the Blue Journal, which was a separate study that had been ongoing in the UK 
multi-center, a couple of center study that was funded actually by GSK. This was actually a GSK-funded trial. And they actually took the same approach. The difference was, and I give these guys credit, Tobin Maher and that group, actually included a control group and an alternate disease group. Remember, Comet was just IPF. They were able to demonstrate that, in fact, there was an abnormality in the lung microbial community. This is just expressed as the total number of organisms in the lung. And they specified some particular organisms, including Haemophilus, Neisseria, ah, strep, they come strep again. And were able to demonstrate an association with survival. So now you had two groups across the Atlantic demonstrating that, in fact, in IPF patients, there is an abnormality in the lung's microbial community, not only in terms of the total number of organisms, the distribution of those organisms, and some particular organisms seem to be particularly related to patients progressing and dying in the intermediate, in the short term. All right? Make sense? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Knowledge is power. So, that's very interesting, that's useful. Listen, I am not a, I'm a not, not a microbiologist. I am, I'm not even an immunologist, to be honest. I'm a clinical trialist. For God. Like, I take care of patients and design and conduct clinical trials. And so, I'm gonna present a series of slides for you that I can barely spell. They're my collaborators. But I can tell you that I have an idea when something is likely going to be therapeutically relevant. Because I had to deal with a lot of patients that have IPF. And it's a crummy disease, with survival only worsened compared to two bad cancers, for God's sake. And so, as a result, my thought was, all right, so this is very interesting. There are a series of individuals across the globe that have identified a series of predictors of badness in IPF. We've now shown an independent, confirmed, potentially mechanistically relevant predictor of badness, can we link all of those together? That's what Comet was meant to do. All right, so Naftali Kaminsky, one of your old colleagues, who's now at Yale. When I left Yale, he's the one who took the position right afterwards, the division chief after I left Yale, uh, has demonstrated in a series of cohorts that there is a gene expression signature in blood. You can see all the groups. They look similar in terms of what's up and down regulated. The patterns look very similar across these groups. This was just published a couple of months ago. And that gene expression signature from circulating peripheral blood mononuclear cells predicts outcome. He's, multiple groups have shown this. This is the group that's been most advanced in confirming it across multiple <laughs> cohorts. But what about in Comet? So this is one of these slides that it, for me is... You know, it, it's, it's something that I can distill what I think is the message. And so this is actually from one of my collaborators, uh, Imri Noth, who is now at Virginia. He was at Chicago in those days. And Imri is a, a bioinformatician. He's a person who does lots of transomic work. He was one of our co-investigators at Chicago in the Comet study. So Imri asked the question, and this paper that we published in the Blue Journal about a year ago, it's one of the most complex papers that I've ever been involved in. It has like 16 figures, 50 uh, supplementary figures. It's really, it's essentially a systems biology approach to IPF. It's taken all the comet data, the lung microbial community data, circling cells, a peripheral blood mononuclear signature. He was on all those papers with Naftali. This is the same signature that he was generating in those separate cohorts, linking it to clinical outcome in the comet cohort. And so there are a series of modules that are sort of gene signatures that relate to clinical outcomes, death, but that also relate to microbial indices. So in fact, these gene modules that Naftali has identified in five separate cohorts in the comet relate to alterations in the lung microbial community, and particularly to this operative taxonomic unit that is a staph and strep-related OTU. 
That's really a staph OTU. So now we have a sense that the gene expression signature that has been independently developed, validated in five cohorts, as predictive of outcome, is predictive of outcome in Comet, but also links to the alteration that we've seen in the lung microbial community. Isn't that interesting? And in fact, when you look at the individual modules and you look at a lot of the genes that are in these modules, there are genes that broadly can be characterized as defining host response parameters. A lot of signaling pathways that relate to inflammatory cell activation or exhaustion. Whether it's the magenta module or the yellow map module, a lot of these pathways are pathways that would imply that the lung is identifying an alteration, an aberrancy in antigenic signatures, signaling, which is potentially related to these abnormal lung microbial community indices. But that relates directly to what a patient's going to do over the next year to two years. Keep that in mind. Hold that thought, because you're part of the cleanup study. This is one of the strong aims of the cleanup study. We'll come to that in a second. All right? So we validated in a, yet another cohort that peripheral blood mononucleoside signature, but we've now extended it to say, ah, and it relates to the lung microbial community. Okay? All right, now, Beth Moore, this collaborator of ours, who ran the project in Comet that examined the phenotype activation status of circulating immune cells, published from Comet, confirmed what multiple other groups had shown. That is, if you look in the blood of patients with IPF and you look at monocyte and monocyte activation, T cell, whether it's CD4s or CD8s, and their activation status, that has been correlated by other groups with outcome in IPF patients. Again, suggesting that whatever's occurring in the lung has triggered some inflammatory process that the body is trying to generate an appropriate response. Guess what? In Comet, those parameters of circulating monocytes and circulating lymphocytes, in fact, are related to outcome. Guess what? They're also related to the lung microbial community, and specifically to the staph OTU. So that, in our minds, suggests that there is now another link. What many people who've argued it's the circulating cells, for God's sake. Why are you looking at proteins? Look at cells. All right, fine. If you look at cells, they do predict outcome, and they seem to be related to the same alteration in the lung microbial community. Isn't that interesting? Now, with another one of my collaborators at Michigan, who's now at Cedar sinai Corey Hogelboom, who's a pathologist. Uh, Corey and I published a series of papers seven, eight years ago where Corey argued that fibroblasts express toll-like receptor 9, one of these uh, pattern recognition signaling pathways that's been preserved from, like, fruit flies, where they were ident initially identified to all of us. We have similarities to fruit flies. There you go. And this particular toll-like receptor, TLR9 expression, identifies patients with IPF who progress over a short time frame versus not progress over a short time frame. And one of the ligands for that TLR9 that we use in the laboratory is CPG, so essentially DNA. And in fact, in fibroblasts from patients who progress versus those who don't progress, there are patients whose fibroblasts respond to CPG and produce matrix. So we had a hard time getting this paper published, being able to identify that, A, that you had a mesenchymal cell expressing this toll-like receptor, and that it was linked to a clinical outcome in patients. We had all kinds of grief from reviewers over this. So there's now more interesting data from Yale, Erica Herzog, suggesting that potentially the ligand may be mitochondrial DNA. Or in Comet, in circulating cells, toll-like receptor 9 relates to the same OTUs. And in fact, if you want to get really complex, and do these very complex analyses where you try to determine the relations between multiple parameters, 
This is an expression of total light receptor pathways and death in IPF patients. The relationship between multiple different potential mechanisms. Look what's in the middle. The, a measure of the lung's microbial community, a, a measure of richness. You'd like, in your lung, a rich microbial community with multiple organisms at low levels. That's a normal microbial community. When the microbial community in the lung starts to become less rich and dominated by particular OTUs, bad. That's not a good thing. And the lung goes, woo, 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 uh, 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 that's not the way God made me. And if you look at fibroblasts from patients in Comet and determine which fibroblasts are responsive to this TLR9 ligand, those patients where that TLR9 signal is present, which associates with outcome, all relate to a series of measures that are measures of the lung microbial community, particularly that OTU 1348. It comes up in every one of our analysis. So think about what I just told you. There are a group of individuals who've argued, oh my god, the best predictor is the PBM's gene expression signature. That's the one. I would say to them, great. Love it. It relates to the lung microbial community. That's probably what's driving it. Those immunologists in the audience who can look at me and say, oh my god, it's, it's all inflammatory cells. Give me a break. That's the signature you're looking at. I would say to you, I agree with you. I love it. Guess what? That all relates to the lung microbial community. For Corey, who keeps telling me, oh, Fernando, it's the way the fibroblast expresses his TLR9. It's this matrix deposition as a result of that. I would say to him, Corey, I love you. I think that's probably correct as well. Guess what that relates to? The same thing in the lung. Now, the problem with all of this is, and this is the problem that I have as a, as a pulmonary person, look this, make English America's official language. So let me, I'll tell you one little side note, so I have a few minutes here. One of the best things that happened to me out of Comet was that for many years, I was on the do not board list. It's a whole separate story I can tell you at some point. You should ask me. I'll tell you my story of my family history of IPF and my cousin who died of IPF, who was the top external spy for the Cuban Communist Party. It's a whole separate saga regarding that. So I was on the Do Not Board list for years as a result of that. And when I got this grant from Comet, I had the, our, our, our senator from Michigan, one of our senators, came to visit to congratulate me from getting this large ARA grant to the University of Michigan. And one of his colleagues, one of his staff members said, what can we do for you? <laughs> so I said, please get me off the do not board list. The next day, I flew overseas. And guess what? I was off the do not board list. So personally, that was probably one of the things that was most practical for me. Not to mention that I think it's going to help patients. But anyway, so remember, that, remember I told you about this group at the UK that had been, could confirm their microbial findings? They published a paper in the Blue Journal within a month of ours, demonstrating exactly the same thing, that they could identify a series of gene expression modules in blood that related to IPF and IPF survival. And the central node in one of those genes is an inflammasome pathway. This is all in circulating cells that related to the lung microbial community with a structure that was very similar to the one we've shown earlier. Now, here's the question. So for those of you young folks, I've shown you all this and I'm trying to make this story and I'm trying to spin it just like Trump tries to spin the wonderful things that he's done. My God, don't get me started on that, sorry. I am a clinical trialist. It is very, very, very difficult in humans to establish causality in these kinds of studies. Uh, it just, it is. So even though I am a clinical trialist, I have become an incredibly big fan of murine models because it is much more straightforward to be able to identify specific mechanisms in a little critter that has a tail where you can alter the gene, knock it in, knock it out, change it, introduce uh, varying components of the lung microbial community. We cannot do that easily in humans, guys. And so this same young man, David O'Dwyer, fellow at Michigan, in this same paper where he showed you that he confirmed some of the comet findings, 
is actually done a lovely study in the principal murine model of fibrosis, which was installation of bleomycin. And what he's demonstrated is, in the short term after you instill bleomycin in a mouse, there is a change in the lung inflammatory process. There is an alveolar injury that occurs in that first week. There is a change in the lung's microbial community in the mouse that occurs with that injury. This is a wild-type mouse. And that microbial community, this is the first seven days. Bleomycin is really an acute lung injury model. It's not really a fibrosis model in that respect. But by the time the mouse develops a fibrotic picture, which is about the three-week mark, so I'm told, I don't do these experiments. I was bitten once by a mouse when I was a first-year fellow, and never again did I want to do mouse work. Sorry about that. I regret that now, because I think this is where you get best mechanistic data. The, 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 the change in the lung microbial community remained present throughout the period of time that the mouse was developing the fibrotic picture. And this is what he tells me, that the changes that occur early on in terms of the lung microbial community in the untreated mouse or in the mouse that re receives bleomycin, by the time that the fibrotic picture is developing, that microbial community alteration is dramatic and persists. This is now a wild-type mouse treated with bleomycin versus a control treated with control, you know, with, with placebo. All right? This is a, what, you, what you can do in mice you can't do in humans. Did exactly the same experiment in a germ-free mouse, a mouse that has no microbial community in its body, including its gut. They're kept in a, in a it's a, an amazing... Uh, animal facility that Michigan has. Actually, most I'm sure you guys have one of those as well, in these germ-free facilities. I mean, you know, you, you have to, like, suit up to go in there because you can't introduce any organism into these components. So he repeated all of these experiments in germ-free mice. And in a germ-free mouse, com compared to sort of its wild-type regular mouse with its microbial community, the level of fibrosis with bleomycin was similar the animals that had no microbial community in its body lived versus conventional mice who died. So there was, in a germ-free mouse, a preservation in terms of mortality despite the development of a fibrotic process in the lung. And that was associated with a series of very prototypical changes in lung immune response. I'm not going to take you through each of those components. I'm not sure how to understand them. But it's very clear that what this animal model demonstrates is that if you perturb the mouse lung in the setting of a microbial community versus not, there are clear changes that can be seen <coughs> in outcome in that animal model. That, to me, is a much stronger argument for the potential importance of this process in what's going to be the most important for us, which is human beings. There was a separate study published a few years earlier by a different group in Europe, also looking at, a, at, a, at an animal model, bleomycin model. But one of the major changes that was done here was the introduction of streptococcal pneumonia versus a mock challenge. Guess what happened when you challenged a mouse with a profibrotic process, bleomycin, plus strep pneumo? You had worse fibrosis. And if you like pictures, it was clearly worse. What were, the, what were the, the OTUs that were of most relevance to us in the Comet study and in the UK study? Gram-positive staph and, staph and strep. Now I get much more interested in terms of whether there's a potential mechanism. But, guys, as I've told you from the beginning, <laughs> I am a person who is basically a clinical trialist. My job is to translate some of these findings into the human setting. If you want to try to demonstrate the relevance of everything I've shown you to a human being, what do you have to do? What do you think? Come on. I'm not going to be able to take an IPF patient and introduce step and strap into their lung and see what happens. IRB is not going to let me do that. So what's the only approach? You have to be able to therapeutically intervene in a fashion that you think it's targeting this potential mechanism, as if it works. So this paper 
published by a group of investigators in the UK. I had reviewed for two major journals, including the Blue Journal, and had rejected the paper both times. And I rejected it because it was a study of Bactrim, an antimicrobial agent in IPF. And they said it seemed to improve survival. And in fact, particularly in people that had low lung function, it improved quality of life. Bactrim. So when that paper was being reviewed, I looked at it and said, Fernando pretending to be a basic scientist, well, there's no mechanism to this. I can't imagine why this would be the case. This makes no sense. Hey, that was wrong. Learn from experience. Data are the data. So these guys have strongly suggested that a simple approach, an antimicrobial strategy, may improve survival and quality of life. They, that has also been demonstrated by a series of investigators that have done the same thing with doxycycline, a separate antimicrobial agent that has a whole series of more pleiotropic effects, a little more complex for doxycycline than it is for, for Bactrim. But both of these suggest that that antimicrobial treatment in IPF may improve functional status and potentially survival. There is an ongoing study in the UK that is testing Bactrim in a traditional clinical trial, placebo-controlled study, with uh, the outcome being progression-free survival. That study is about halfway done. You're involved in this study. This is the US version of that study. It's called Cleanup IPF. Don't, even, don't ask how we got that name. I, I was outvoted, even though I'm the principal investigator. It's a stupid name, but we're in a democracy. Woohoo! All right? There's a whole group of investigators. There are a whole group of clinical sites, you guys included, that are part of cleanup. The idea behind cleanup, cleanup is to confirm that, the, that, that an antimicrobial therapy strategy in an IPF patient improves a clinical outcome, progression-free survival. So for all you young people, you've already seen that you have to adapt in life, and you have to be able to use the resources that are available to you. There is nothing perfect in life. There is nothing that's the ideal situation. Is there, Rick? Is everything ideal with life? No. You've got to make the best of what you've got. So the NIH says, said to us in this particular announcement, we want pragmatic studies. Pragmatic. It's the, the hot word now at the NHLBI. Why do you think they want pragmatic studies? You tell me what you think. Why do you think the NHLBI wants to do pragmatic studies? They're cheaper. For God's sake, they're trying to protect your tax dollars. And so they, they view a pragmatic study to be a cheaper study. All right, we'll work within that construct. This is what we want to prove, a group of us, you included, one of these investigators. That's our goal. And we want to be able to say, all right, and we're going to prove that you can do a pragmatic study in IPFs. First time anybody's ever tried this. I'll tell you in a second what pragmatic studies are like that we want to do something that a patient can understand. In the next year and a half, you are more likely to live with a better quality of life than your forced vital capacity will have changed by only 6.2% versus 7.5%. Clinically relevant endpoint. That's what we're testing. Based on the hypothesis that all of that microbial links to the circulating cells and the gene expression signal that all of that is mechanistically related. And in fact, we've already told you guys, we have a strong sense that this gene expression signature in blood, which relates to outcome, is directly linked to a perturbation in the lung microbial community. So if this stuff works, it's going to work in these patients that have that gene expression signature. That's what I would hypothesize. Now, part of the challenge to all this, which is interesting, as I'm sure you know because you're an investigator, do you make money in cleanup? Cleanup is a very bare-bones study. I mean, it is brutal. The only way that we've been able to carry this off has been by partnering with two foundations, which are two families, in Chicago for some reason. Chicago's a lot of IPF. I don't know. There's a lot of IPF uh, there. And one family has provided an increase in budget for the sites that have increased the budget by 60%, one family. The second family has funded the collection and storage of all these biological samples. Because the NHLBI had removed that from the budget, seriously. I mean, give me a break, NIH. Because this is your first opportunity to introduce precision therapy in IPF. If we're correct, and we demonstrate that 
an antimicrobial therapy strategy that is in patients that have this gene expression signal which suggests an abnormality in the lung microbial community. Oh my God, this precision medicine. With an intervention, how much does, uh, does doxybectum cost per month? 40 bucks. Our current antifibrotic therapies, how much do they cost per month? Much more. Much more. Eight to 9,000 per month. And so this is part of the excitement for this study. Now, it is two antimicrobial agents, either Bactrim or Doxy. That was done for a very practical reason. Since this is a pragmatic study with limited follow-up, we could not do a study where you risked patients. When you do clinical trials in humans, guys, that is your first priority. Do not hurt someone. And so since we had a limitation in terms of the amount of follow-up we were going to do, we were going to simulate clinical care. We had to introduce a series of inclusion and exclusion criteria that are relatively simple, but minimize the likelihood that you're going to hurt someone, particularly with Bactrim, which can be associated with hyperkalemia. And so there are some exclusions for people at risk for hyperkalemia with Bactrim. Those individuals are individuals that can be treated with doxycycline. So there's an algorithm where we prefer to use Bactrim because the best preliminary unit with Bactrim, but we also say if you think you're going to hurt the patient, don't do that. Consider using doxy as an alternative. And right now, our estimates are correct. 66% of patients in the study are on Bactrim. 34% are on doxy. That's, that's how this was designed. Primary endpoint, that's something that's that easy to interpret, whether you're hospitalized or you die. There are a series of secondary endpoints. These are the biological samples. One of these you will like, you GI person. Because we've had the NHLBI for a long time telling us, how could you ignore poop? Exactly. I mean, come on. You make a living out of poop. <laughs> and so this is the first time that we've done an NIH study in the lung where we collect poop in patients. There you go. You see? Now, there are a lot of interesting components. There's actually a, a, a tremendous evolving literature that the gut derives what happens in the lung. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think that this, the GI guys are we've been borrowing from them for a long time. I think you're absolutely correct. So we're going to be able to test that. We also need to have a sense that we haven't altered the lung, the, the, the guts, the community with these antimicrobial agents, particularly C. diff. You know, we haven't had any C. diff, but I cannot imagine that when you look in a very fancy way at the gut microbial community that we will not have altered that with an antimicrobial agent. I just, you know it's going to happen. You know, it happens in everything else that we do uh, with antimicrobial agents. We're collecting oral samples so that we get a better sense of this signature. We're collecting blood for peripheral blood mononuclear cells, and also for a lot of these circulating proteins, there's one major thing missing from this study. We're not sampling the lung. The study in the UK has a subset of patients that they're doing bronchoscopies in. We've just submitted two R01s to try to do a bronchoscopic sub-study in, in, in Comet. We'll see what the study section says. I hope, I hope they, they like it. So cleanup is a study that has broad inclusion criteria. It is easy to enroll in the study. It's to simulate what occurs in clinical practice. It has an antimicrobial agent versus no antimicrobial agent. It's not a placebo-controlled trial. That's a limitation, but that's one of the pragmatic principles for pragmatic trials. It has a broad range of centers across the US. It has clinical follow-up. The patients don't have to come 15 extra times. They're clinical visits. It's simulating clinical care. You saw the primary endpoint, a clinically interpretable primary endpoint. We monitor compliance with calling patients. This is not pill counts, and it's not uh, electronic methods. This is, again, an important component of the pragmatic study principles. Limited oversight. We're not harassing the sites over this. This is supposed to simulate clinical care. That's one of the key pragmatic principles. And then it's an ITT analysis. So when you look at the, the study in terms of how it meets the definition of a pragmatic trial, it does really well except in terms of the sites. We don't have a lot of really community-based sites because that's, IPF is a tough disease to actually study in a community setting. We have a series of expert sites that are regional referral centers throughout the U.S. This is, outdate, this is outdated. You've seen some of my emails that I keep sending out to all the investigators. This is an NIH clinical trial that is bare bones Sites tend to lose money in this study. We are almost two months ahead of enrollment. Rick, it is the first time I have ever seen that in an IPF study. 
it is recruiting, I mean, we had four randomizations just yesterday. It is unbelievable. It's like rapidly randomizing, in part because I hope people understand biologically, it's a really clever idea. I think there's a strong set of preliminary data behind it. There's, a, there's an interesting mechanistic insight behind it. And it is a really simple study to do of a really simple agent that is dirt cheap. That study is ongoing. I couldn't help but leave <laughs> one last uh, comment. Free bungee jumps for Congress, no instructions attached. I leave you with those thoughts. So this, these are, uh, this is Fernando Martinez, clinical trialist, pretending to be a translational biologist. But you know what, guys? I think this is going to work. And I think you're going to be able to demonstrate that there is a key relationship between what's happening in the lung microbial community, thank you, GI world, that we'll be able to define patients that will benefit in a clinically relevant fashion from a remarkably simple, cheap, well-tolerated therapeutic intervention. We'll see what happens over the course of the next year. We're hoping to finish recruiting this clinical trial by next year, and we'll have results a year after that. Keep your fingers crossed. We'll see what happens. All right? Thoughts or questions? We're right on time. It's perfect. Yeah? It seems to me that a better mouse model might be up for useful, and I'm wondering what's happening in that area. Uh, I agree complete, completely with you. Uh, so there was an NIH workshop about three, four years ago that was trying to set priorities for IPF research. And what became really interesting was that some of my colleagues, I don't, I don't know if you've heard Eric White, who's at Michigan, who was, an, was a murine uh, you know, biologist, he did animal models in fibrosis, has become the animal models are useless. You should do everything in human samples. And Fernando Martinez at this workshop was the person who was saying, hold on a second. You need better animal models. You can't do a lot of this stuff in humans. This is stuff where you need better animal models. And so there, there is a, a tremendous need that includes a different terms of challenge. I think the substrate of the mouse is important. I think aging mice are much more likely to be useful in the setting than little young critters. This is a disease of people who are a little bit older. Uh, and I don't think a single wheel mice in installation, which is an acute lung injury model, is ideal. But, I mean, you guys have been working on models in older mice where you do multiple samples. I mean, I think that makes much more relevance. One of the things that I didn't show you in this, uh, in this study was that the data from Beth Moore with the circulating monocytes and, uh, and lymphocytes. If you follow patients over time and you look at these, these uh, phenotypic markers of uh, activation of monocytes and, and, uh, and lymphocytes, they go like this. And it really provides you a sense that what's happening in the IPF lung are sort of recurrent injuries of some way that continues to perturb the lung microbial community that then drives this fiber proliferate process. It may be that it's reflux that's causing a lot of these components. Uh, and so I agree with you completely. I don't do animal models. If you do animal models, I encourage you to develop better animal models of pulmonary fibrosis because I think those are going to be vital for us to be able to get some sense of mechanism. This is how you do it in humans. You've got to do therapeutic trials. And when I mentioned Doxy, this young man had a look on his face of, oh, I understand fully the effects Doxy has on MMPs, and it's much more than just alteration in the lung microbial community. I'm sure reviewers will give us grief over that when that paper goes there. I will stand back with, we're doing a pragmatic study. If it works, I hope you can tell us that it's an MMP, but you know what? It works. You keep patients alive, and they feel better. We won on that one. So, but I understand from mechanistic component the, the limitations of that kind of design. That young lady, and then I'll come back over. I wonder if there's any correlation, or is it known yet, if um, the frequency of bacterial lung infections can lead to IPF later in life? So, yes, yeah, so that's a good question. So the question is, are they suggesting that the frequency of infections associated with development of subsequent IPF? It turns out that there is one of these same families that's been involved in, in, in partnering with the NIH uh, is funding a separate study that is, has done a series of really interesting data sets, analyses, from the UK, where people are in this you know, a global healthcare system where all of their visits can be tracked electronically. And they've published a couple of papers, actually the same guy who's doing that study uh, in the UK with Bactrim, that the number of acute respiratory events that are coded by a primary care clinician 
is associated with an increased risk of subsequent fibrosis. For whatever that means, if you see a patient in clinic and you say bronchitis, ICD-9 code black, uh, whatever that means. But in, that, in those studies, the more of those that you have, the more likely that patient's eventually going to be diagnosed with IPF, particularly if they're over 70. Um, having been involved with a lot of community-based uh, primary care research, it occurs to me that you might be able to get imperfect, but better than none data if you ask the patient self-report of pill counts. So you're correct. And so we've actually toyed with that idea. Uh, and even on our call this last week, and your coordinators were on this, we had this long discussion regarding adherence and how to potentially monitor adherence. Uh, and there is a proposal on the table for a patient that you're correct. Uh, but I, what I need is input from people like you who do this for a living. I mean, I, have, I am a traditional explanatory trialist. I've been involved in doing explanatory trials, not effectiveness studies. I mean, I've been involved in doing you know, IPF nutties, placebo-controlled trials. You know, the Panther study was three placebos for azoprednac. I mean, these were very traditional studies. This, for me, is a new intervention, a new approach, this pragmatic community-based studies, realizing communities include here and Maya Center. <laughs> Not really necessarily a, a, the community setting. Well, you guys have a broad range, and you have, you're more community-like. You aid us in pushing that little thing a little bit farther out, because if you include... You know, Michigan and the Brigham, that doesn't count. <laughs> that just clearly doesn't uh, serve in that capacity. We're, we're trying to figure out how to, uh, how to best do one of these pragmatic studies. What I can say so far is that recruitment and adherence to the protocol has been remarkably good. I'm impressed at how well that has gone. Hope it works out at the end. So first, thank you for calling me a young man. <laughs> a child. And just a comment to reinforce the whole GERD and microbiome connection. I have two brothers who died of IPF, oh. two sisters who are being treated now, one by Ganesh Raghu, and since he helped her with the whole GERD thing, she is remarkably better. Yep. So let me tell you a quick story about that. I'm sorry to hear that. Your family must be a wonderful family because it only happens to nice people. Uh, the, it, it, trust me, guys, it's, it's like a risk factor. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Uh, and so Ganesh, who is at the University of Washington, has been... Uh, he's pretending like he's a gastroenterologist. He's always been that way. He's a close friend of mine, so I've harassed him at times. Now, Ganesh has been arguing this reflux, reflux thing for a long time. And I've been one of the people who's poo-pooed that. Uh, come on, Ganesh, reflux, really? Uh, and so we, Ganesh, Hal Collard, uh, uh, and I uh, put together an NIH phase two trial that was originally going to be a PPI versus placebo randomized control trial. And the, Ganesh and I have been involved, and Ganesh has led this, uh, one, of the, one of our workshops, uh, one of our eight statements, one of these position statements. And I've got to finish up real quick because the, the Blue Journal call is going on right now, and I've got to get on the editor call. Um, and we had developed a new mechanism for grading evidence and voting on evidence. Uh, and so people like Ganesh and I were conflicted because we have industry conflicts, so we were conflicted. We couldn't vote. And so the voting members voted to recommend PPIs be routinely used in patients with IPF. So right as we were writing this grant, our own position statement torpedoed completely the, the, the randomized control trial we had proposed. So we had to change it at the last moment, and we made it a reflux therapy, a, a surgical therapy, a fundoplication randomized control trial, which was published in Lancet Respiratory Medicine in the last month and a half. Month. It was at the ERS. It was published with a non-significant primary endpoint because it was a hard study to recruit. It was not a PPI anymore. Now it was fundoplication in an IPF patient. It was much more difficult to recruit. Uh, the, if you look at the, the vital capacity change, we were underpowered. Mortality improved. I told Ganesh when I first saw those results, Ganesh, I stand corrected. You have convinced me that reflux is clearly a relevant process, in the, and I would not be surprised if that's what's a lot of these acute injuries that are occurring. Uh, whether that relates to the lung microbial community, a lot of these organisms that we see in the lung are mouth organisms. I mean, you could easily link those, those components. Uh, but whatever is occurring in terms of these acute injuries and the lung becomes unstable and the microbial community starts to alter, I'm not, com I'm not sure that the microbial community changes the inciting factor. But I do think it's, it's the factor that's driving progression. 
And so I think if you, what you'll end up doing is you'll end up being really aggressive in treating reflux, and in selected patients, you'll end up using antimicrobial therapy. That's what I think is going to be the future. But there's an interesting issue of both the reflux may be related, but the PPI use may also alter microbiome. Correct. And, and so your study would have been very helpful. Trust me, I, yes, I agree completely. Not to mention that there actually is. Can I call the NIH? This was this was not the NIH. It was, it was the ATS, uh, the American Thoracic Society um, format. It was just painful. We had written the entire grant. We had a whole specific game that was going to be, and it's just our own group torpedoed the whole thing at the last moment. Welcome to doing clinical trials. Yeah, you know what? You've got to adapt to it, and you proceed onwards. We ended up doing a study that I think is going to end up being very influential. Uh, so I'm, Ganesh is I, Ganesh is right. What, what I've done now is if, if a person with IPF says they know how to spell heartburn, they're treated in my book. And I'm much more aggressive now doing pH probes uh, and have been much more aggressive in pursuing surgical therapies in people with persistent reflux despite being on a high-dose PPI and dietary modification. Because I, I think Ganesh is right. All right? <laughs>